following message is recorded at City Light Church in Vicksburg, Mississippi. City Light Church exists to shine the light across in our city and world through the transformed lives of its people. For more information on the church and its ministries, please visit www.citylightvicksburg.org. sermon passage comes from Galatians chapter 6 verses 1 through 5. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. How y'all doing? Amen. All right. So this is an interesting, interesting morning to discuss uh, what we're about to talk about. I want to talk to you a little, little bit about loving your neighbor with tough love. Loving your neighbor with tough love. Okay. Loving your neighbor with tough love. Jesus does a very interesting thing in the Gospels. Um, he, he talks about that if, if, there, if your neighbor finds fault with you, um, that you should go to your neighbor, all right, right? Even if you're at the altar, even if you're offering an offering, and if there is something um, at, at, at that, that, that is not right, that is not right between you and your neighbor, that you should go immediately and, rec- and reconcile and fix that, okay? But he talks about also that if, if you have a problem or sin, there's a sin issue, not that your neighbor has fought with you, but that you have fought with them or, or that you have issue with them, that you should also, then you should go then as well. So you should go if your neighbor has issue with you, and you should go, I'm sorry, you should go if you, if your, if, if your neighbor has found issue in you, then he's reconciling. And you should go if you found issue with your neighbor. That's what Jesus says. Right? Does that make sense? It says it in Matthew 5, it says it in Matthew 18. Both, both of those points, it almost seems like he's talking out of both sides of his mouth, right? So you want me to go if, if it's my neighbor's fault and you want me to go if it's my fault? And his answer is yes. Because Jesus is about confrontation that breeds reconciliation. Confrontation that brings about restoration. And if if our church is going to be uh, a church that models the love that Christ calls us to, which is this significant big love that that is obviously not within our stratosphere or within our natural power to reach. It's a spirit-led and a spirit-empowered type of love that God is calling us to, and it's a grace-saturated type of love. And the reason I say that is because oftentimes, even with the Spirit's enablement, we're still going to fall short of it. And when we fall short of it, we're going to need God's grace to cover us in it. So this is a stratosphere-leaping type of love. But if we're going to even pursue it, right, then we have to understand that it comes with the need to pursue it in the midst of conflict and in the midst of times when it's not very comfortable to pursue it. Does that make sense? And so this is the text that we're, this text in Galatians is, is Paul kind of highlighting this, this, this very idea that in order to really get at this love, it's going gonna, it's gonna to require some tough 
tough moments. And I want to talk a little bit about what, what, what type of people are required to do this and, 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 and why do we need to do this and how do we do it, all right? What type of people, why do we do it, how do we do it? So, so let's look at Galatians chapter 6. Let's look at verse 1. It says in the text, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Before we lovingly confront one another for the purposes of personal sanctification and for the purposes of the church's flourishing, we must examine ourselves in our own maturation in Christ. Brothers, if anyone amongst you is caught in sin, any sin, any sin, any transgression, you who are spiritual, caught seems to indicate that, number one, this is a sin that someone else uh, can clearly see, right? They've been caught in it. So in other words, people have witnessed this. They've seen it and they've identified it as transgression, as wrongdoing, as failure, as falling short of God's holy law. But this is also a sin that maybe when the one who commits it, maybe he realizes it and maybe he isn't even pleased with it. He was caught, right? He wasn't celebrating. Caught in... Caught indicates almost a sense of shame in the sense that once, once he's found out. So quite possibly there's a humbling here that invites the confrontation. There's a humbling here that maybe invites the criticism that's needed for restoration. And we'll, we'll come back to that humbling in, 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 in a little bit later. But, but if someone amongst you is caught in any sin, Paul says, you who are spiritual. Those who are spiritual, that is not a particular position in the church that Paul is describing. He's not saying that those who are pastors, those who are elders, those who are uh, deacons, those who are leaders in the church, those who are spiritual. That's not what Paul is saying. It's not a position. It's a posture. It's a posture that speaks to maturation, that speaks to maturity, rather. Part of the reason that confrontation and restoration in the church is is so rarely done and so rarely seen is because it is so poorly done, if we're being frank. So many of us are so ill-equipped to, to confront the brothers and sisters that we now call family. And, or, so many of us are so ill-equipped to receive loving confrontation and allow the Lord to expose our blind spots when someone comes and confronts us. Even if that exposure comes from the courageous and careful words of a loving brother and sister. In other words, sometimes we don't like to give it, and sometimes we simply don't like to take it. Does it make sense? And it's that immaturity that leads us in a position where we are not as unified as we ought to be, where we are not fulfilling the commandment to love like we ought. But this isn't a new issue. This isn't a new issue. This is an issue that Paul has, Paul is even working through right now in this book. So if you turn just one chapter back in chapter five, let's look at the last verses that Paul gives us in chapter five of Galatians. Chapter five, verse 22 through 26. Chapter five, verse 22 through 26. And he says this. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. 
and those who belong to Christ Jesus who have crucified the, I'm sorry, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So catch this sequence, right? Paul first defines the fruit of the Spirit to the Galatians. What does the Spirit-filled life look like? What does it produce? And he talks about love, right? Peace, joy, gentleness, kindness, goodness, patience. Which if you're paying attention, you'll notice that most of these qualities are relationally charged, aren't they? They're relationship qualities. You know, most of the time we think about being spirit-empowered and spirit-driven. We're thinking about, you know, moving mountains and, and, and casting out demons. And, oh, that's really spiritual. And it is really spiritual. But guess what? What else is really spiritual? Loving that unlovable neighbor. Does that make sense? Being joyful in the midst of situations that don't usually bring about joy. Being gentle with harsh people. Does that make sense? All of that is spirit and power and spirit enabled, and it comes as a result of the newness of life that has been brought to us by the spirit. So in other words, I don't expect you to do any of this before you're saved, but certainly we should start seeing it after. Maybe it's in small doses, maybe it's in increasing doses, but we should start seeing these things. Enlisting these qualities, we see that so much of living out the supernatural life is growing in our supernatural ability to express these gifts, these, this fruit, in ways that we previously could not in the treatment of our neighbors. But then he moves from, from defining the fruit of the Spirit to encouraging the saints by saying positively, if we have faith, if we have life in the Spirit, then we should walk in such a way that the life we have produced or that we, the life that we live produces these qualities. Does that make sense? And so he says, okay, if you are now born again, if the Spirit now resides in you, if you are living by the Spirit, then as a result of living by the Spirit, you should be producing what the Spirit produces. Those who claim to be regenerated by the Spirit should be reflecting these qualities, this fruit, in their everyday lives. And in particular, in their dealing with their neighbors, who is each and every person that you meet along the way. Let it be on full display is what Paul is encouraging us to do. But then finally, Paul moves to a negative admonishment. And he says this. Other, he says, he starts with a definition. Then he says, okay, if you're walking in the spirit, you should look like that. Look like that definition I gave you. And then now he is going to basically say, when you are walking in the spirit, you should not look like this. And he begins to define what looking like this is. And he says, do not look like this. Do not become what? Conceited. Do not provoke one another and do not envy one another. In other words, when he talks about do not be conceited, think about it. Think about him saying, don't be self-inflated in such a way that you literally can't see yourself as a candidate of failure. Don't be so high-minded that you can't see yourself falling. So self-involved that you can't see a genuine need to help someone who has fallen. Don't see yourself as above struggle, above stumbling, above wrongdoing, above falling off. But then he says, don't provoke one another either, which means don't cause others to struggle. 
Don't cause others to stumble. Don't cause others to commit acts of wrongdoing. And then he says, don't envy one another. Which means don't want the possessions, the positions, the, the privilege, the, the knowledge, or the people that others have more of than you. Or to put it another way, don't desire the power of another so much that you secretly and even passive-aggressively enjoy and hope for the downfall of their, of their lives. Don't low-key enjoy and look forward to others committing acts of wrongdoing or stumbling. No, sometimes we do that with celebrities, right? We, we look at celebrities, we see their lives, they got all kinds of money, and so when they fall, we, all, we chuckle. He says, don't do that. Don't envy. You say, I'm not envious. Of course you are. You wouldn't chuckle if they, were, if, they, if they were you. You chuckle because they're them. Does that make sense? It's, it's, it's this, right? He, he's defining what are spiritual people before he gives you the commandment in chapter 6. And understand, you don't have to worry about the divisions, okay? Don't worry about the chapter divisions, the verse divisions. Don't worry about that. That stuff came like 13th, 14th, 15th century, okay? When Paul's writing this letter, it's holistic. He's just looking at it as one solid letter. And so understand that when he's moving from chapter 5 to chapter 6, there is continuity for him. Does that make sense? And so he gives you what it looks like to be spiritual before he actually says, brothers, you who are spiritual. And so, when he says, brothers, you who are spiritual, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness if anyone is caught in any transgression. Those who are caught in transgression, you have to ask yourself, am I in a position to confront my brother or my sister when they have fallen? Am I producing the fruit of the spirit? Am I walking without conceit and envy? Am I walking in a way that does not lead to provocation of my brother towards their failures? Before I even go to them, I should be asking myself, did I in some ways take some pleasure in seeing that failure? Before I go to them, I should ask myself, you know, how many people did I have to communicate to about that failure before I decided to communicate with them? Because that may speak to the, real, the reality of whether or not I'm ready to communicate to them. You who are spiritual. You who are spiritual, restore your brothers. How do, we, how, do we, how do we do that, though? He says, you who are spiritual, so we identify who we need to be in order to be in a position to confront our brothers and our sisters when they fall short. But how do we do that? We do that with gentleness. You who are spiritual, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Well, let me say this real quick. Being gentle doesn't mean being absent of pain. You understand that? So we got some great, great, you know, great doctors and nurses and practitioners um, that, that give pediatric care to my son um, here in the city. But they have to take blood tests every once in a while. They got to draw blood. They got to, you know, do the, do the prick or to do the iron thing. And, they, and, they, and there's one sister, man, that is fantastic at doing this. She can draw blood with the best of them. 
I don't know if there's like competitions for this or whatever, but, but she can draw blood with the best of them, okay? It's fantastic. My son, when he, when he goes, he wants to see this particular woman because he knows she's probably the best one in the room for this. But you know what? No matter how gentle she is, it's still going to hurt a little bit. You understand that? The spirit of gentleness does not absolve us of pain. It does not free us of pain. When we confront, listen, listen, folks. When you confront, you cannot simply, the, the goal should not be to not bring pain. The goal should be to lovingly restore. Because if the goal is to bring, not bring pain, this is what's going to happen. You're not going to draw blood. Are you tracking with that? You're not going to do it. If, if, if her goal is, I don't want to bring this child any pain, she's not going to draw blood. And so for you, as you think about confronting some one of your friends or one of your family members or one of your church members, as you see them wavering in their walk with God, if your goal is to say, I don't want to bring any pain, you'll never go and talk to them. The goal can't be to be pain-free. The goal has to be restoration. Loving restoration. And so gentleness looks different depending on, uh, depending on what situation and what circumstance we find ourselves in when it's time to bring about this confrontation and this restoration. Take, for example, we'll take two examples. One's an Old Testament example, Nathan and David. Nathan was the prophet. David was the king. There's three instances in the scripture where Nathan and David have words with each other. All right. One of them is a lot tougher than the other two. The first one is actually not really, it's, it's kind of tough. It requires courage. And, 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 and these types of moments require courage, don't they? In order for us to step out and say these things that we need to say. And so Nathan has to be courageous to speak to David in this first moment. The first moment is found in 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel, David and Nathan, or, or, or David says, I want to build a house to put God's ark in. The place that God dwells tangibly. I want to build an ark for him to, or build a place for that ark to dwell. And Nathan says, sounds like a good idea to me. Go build it. And then Nathan goes home and he goes to bed. When he goes home and he goes to bed, God speaks to him and says, I don't want want David to do that. Instead, I'm going to build David a house and a kingdom that will last throughout the ages, but David won't be the one to do it. His offspring will. Now, that is shadowing Jesus Christ. But this is what's interesting. That's great news, isn't it? I mean, who doesn't want to tell somebody that, hey, don't worry about this one. Don't worry about building this house now because your house is going to stand forever. Your kingdom is going to stand forever. Who doesn't, who doesn't like bringing good news to people? So sometimes there's courage in our confrontation, but even in those moments, it's not nearly as tough as when the news that we have to bring is not so pleasant. And there's a second instance, 2 Samuel chapter 12, when David is found, have caught in his transgression of having sinned against God by committing adultery with another man's wife, sending that man to the front line of the war in order to be slain, in order that he might not get caught, and because the wife turns up pregnant. And so all these things begin to spiral out of control for David. He takes the action of literally murdering one of his own soldiers in order to hide this sin. And then Nathan comes. What does the spirit of gentleness look like? What does the spirit of gentleness look like? Well, this is, this is what it looks like 
Nathan says this in 2 Samuel chapter 12. And the Lord sent Nathan to David and came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children, and he used it to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock and herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And then David's anger was greatly kindled against this man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he has did this thing and because he had no pity. He took that man's lamb that was like a daughter to him that that man had literally holding in his arms. This man treated this lamb like some of us treat the dogs where we dress them up, right? And, and, and they're all, they got like nice little sweaters, right? We love that animal. This man loved that lamb. And then this guy comes along and takes him. How would you feel about that? That was your lamb. Nathan tells David this story, and David is furious. What kind of man would do something this crazy? Take the only lamb that this man has. Well, that man is going to die. Whoever that man is, he's going to die, and that man who t whose lamb was taken, we're going to give him four lambs in return. Nathan looks up at David, and he says, you are the man. And then he begins to delve out, deal out to David his punishment from God. The fact that he's going to lose a child as a result of this sin. Folks, that is not good news to bring a buddy of yours. That is not good news to bring a friend. And that news, listen to me, that news, no matter how you share it, can't be shared without pain. But the way he shared it was as gentle as he possibly could. You can tell in the way that he shared it he, that he wasn't looking to see David fall as much as he was looking to see David rise, right? He wasn't just trying to call out David's evil. He was trying to win him back. And so it was important for him to, to make sure that David understood what he did. Does that make sense? You know, sometimes when, we're, sometimes when we're confronting people, we're not concerned about whether or not they get it right or not. We're just concerned about how it impacted me, how it affected me, how it hurt me, right? Sometimes we just want to say something to make it sting when we're confronting people? Does that make sense? So we walk away feeling good about ourselves? That's not Nathan's point. Nathan's point, yes, David has sinned. Nathan's point is to win him back, which is why he is so gentle and so patient in working his way around telling this story with misdirection so that David's eyes might be opened, he might see his sin, he might cry out to God for repentance and restoration. If your confrontation is not filled with provocation, looking to tear someone down, if your confrontation is not filled with envy, 
enjoying the downfall of another, if it's not filled with conceit, thinking that you're higher than that person as you begin to speak to that person, and rather if instead it's filled with spirit-filled love and gentleness towards your fallen brother or sister, this will be the manner in which you confront them. You look at the New Testament example, Jesus and Peter. Jesus himself was sold out to Peter. I mean, sold, sold out by Peter for no other definition. Peter's transgression is not quite as severe as Judas's, but it ain't like he got a whole lot of room to talk. In those moments, in those deep, dark moments after Jesus is vacated or, or, or left alone, left absent by all of those who followed him, there was one in particular that it probably stung the most, Peter, because he was always the one talking about, I'll never leave you. I'm always going to be here. You ain't got to worry about me going anywhere. How would that feel? To have that one, right? <laughs> you know, you got some friends and you know, you're like, man, hey, we might be friends tomorrow. I don't know. <laughs> you, 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 I mean, seriously, you got some friends like that. You, you don't know, maybe, you're, maybe you'll be friends tomorrow, maybe you're not. I don't know. But then you got some friends that's like, okay, that, that's my road dog. That's the person that I know is going to always, gonna, they're going to always be there. And, and not only that, but you, but you even got in this story him telling you that I'm going to be there. I'm not going any, I'm going to be there. You ain't got to worry about me going anywhere. I'm there for you, Jesus, until they come and get you. And until I find out that they're going to crucify, what? Crucifixion? That means that I might have to? No. Don't know the man. Don't know him. Never heard of him. So it's this man that Jesus, when he confronts him, and it is confrontation in the latter part of John, he confronts him with simply these words. Do you love me? Peter says, yes, Lord, I do. I've realized my mistake. I've seen my failure. Yes, Lord, I do. He says, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. He asked Peter three times. The amount of times that Peter denies him, that's the amount of times he asks him, do you love me? He's not concerned with throwing it back in Peter's face. He's concerned with making sure that Peter knows that he's been restored. Does that make sense? He restores with gentleness. God does that. Christ does that with you. The Bible says that he has carried our sin to the cross, that, that he himself took our sin upon his own shoulder. There are so many ways that God could smear your sin in your face. Countless ways that he could destroy you in your restoration. And yet, here we are, thriving in him, growing in him. Here we are, being loved by him, sensing and knowing that he loves us. Here we are, seeing the great act of his own son, pouring out his own blood for you and for me. There is no gent gentler act or more gentle act of restoration than Christ restoring us. 
which leads to the last part, which is why do we love? Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, that we, we, we bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. This posture of helping one another through our brokenness is not just simply a good to have for Paul. This posture of bearing well with one another, loving, uh, loving each other with tough love, confronting one another and our failures with gentleness, it goes all the way back to the sermon that we preached last week. And if you didn't hear last week's sermon, go back and listen to it online. But we talked about the fact that Jesus gives us a command, when, or when asked about a command, what's the greatest command? Jesus gives two, love God, love neighbor. And he says, if you do those two, everything else will fall in place. All of the law and all the prophets, in other words, all of the scripture hang on those two commandments, right? And so the law of Christ is that law. Love God, love neighbor. That's the law of Christ. Bearing one another's burdens falls directly in line with that law. And so what it means to love one another, what it means to love neighbor well, what that means is to be willing to confront neighbor in their failings, in their failures. To be unwilling to confront is to be unloving. To be unwilling to confront with love is to be unloving. To be unwilling to confront with gentleness is to be unloving. Bearing one another's burdens means patiently aiding one another in our sanctification. When we fall, picking ourselves, picking, picking the other back up and saying, no, nah, brother, that's not the way we do it. No, nah, sister, come on, come on, come on, come on now. You know, you know we're supposed to be doing it like this. Come on, let's go. I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to run with you. But I'm not going to sit there and just watch you. I'm not going to laugh at you. I'm not going to sit there and watch you out of fear that you're going to think that I'm, quote, unquote, judging you. Not cutting each other loose after the first instance of being cut by each other. Not letting sinful habits and practices of our Christian brothers go unconfronted, but humbly, courageously, gently flashing the mirror on those errors, doing a Nathan on them, if you will, finding roundabout ways to misdirect the discussion so that they can see clearly their error, doing whatever you can to help them understand, and not just simply pointing out error, but doing whatever you can to help them understand the error. This is fulfilling Jesus's law. But we also fulfill the law when we love tough through carrying one another's burdens, because in so doing, this is why we fulfill, this is why, or this is how we fulfill the law, because in so doing, we're imitating him. That's how you fulfill the law of Christ, because when you bear one another's burdens, you are imitating the, the great burden bearer. Does that make sense? You are imitating Jesus. This is what he has done for you. And so every single time that you make the decision to carry the weight, right, of a fallen brother or a fallen sister, by walking with that fallen brother and that fallen sister, you are imitating Christ. You are showing them Jesus. This is why you love tough. Let me destroy the judging and the, mystic, and, and the legalism myth real quick, all right? Just for a quick, just for a quick, quick second. So what's happening in Galatians is Paul 
is attacking legalism. Because there's a group of people that say, you got to obey this law, you got to obey that law, you got to do this practice, you got to do that practice, you got to do this, X, Y, Z, that, 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 this and that, that and other. Oh, wait a second, you're not circumcised, you got to be circumcised. And, and what Paul is doing, he's spending six chapters attacking legalism. And you know what happens within those six chapters of attacking legalism? He speaks about confrontation of a brother or sister in wrongdoing. So in our generation, whenever a brother or sister is confronting a wrongdoing, what do we say? Stop judging me. But Paul is talking about legalism. And yet he still finds room to say, hey, oh, by the way, confront your brothers when they fall. Gently restore them. Gently bring them back. Does that make sense? It's not legalism. It's love. Here's an interesting thing about legalism anyway. We think that all, we, for some reason, the most important things in our lives, we lend the least amount of scrutiny towards. The most important things in our lives, we leave the least amount of space for ridicule and criticism, don't we? Don't we? You can go outside, you can go outside tomorrow, have a basketball game, play a basketball game with a bunch of guys. You can literally have a guy tell you, man, you play like trash today. Yeah, man, you're right, man, I did, I did. You can, you, can, you, can, you can have a bad hair day and one of your sisters will go, girl, man, what happened to your hair today? I know, I know, I know. I know I tried so hard, I tried so hard. You can go to the gym, Right? Bro, what's up with you at the gym? Why you, why you slacking? Come on, let's get it. Let's go. Man, you're right, man. I know, I know, man. I'm just so tired, bro. I'm so tired. Well, come on, let's go. All right, man. You're right, you're right, you're right. But if you say, dude, why are you spending so much time with that woman? Don't be judging me. So all, everything else is on the table for criticism except the most important thing in your life, which is your relationship with God. Can't we see the obvious trick of the enemy there? The other reason why we should actually love tough is because we all need tough love. There's going to be a time when you need someone else to bear your burden. And in your failure, you're going to need someone to come and confront and say, bro, that ain't the way you do it, man. Come on, walk with me. Come on, man. Get, come on back. Come on back. If you, think, if you think that you're exempt from that, then you are living a delusion. I lovingly and courageously and humbly bear with you because I know, I know that there will come a time where you will have to do the same for me. I patiently and I lovingly and courageously confront you in your sin, and I patiently and courageously and lovingly labor with you to see any relationships that you have injured as a result of this sin restored and healed, because I know that if I'm around long enough, I'm going to need the exact same thing from you. And Paul says it when he says in verse 3, for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. You hear that? 
Restore gently. Why? Because you're not above this. When one can, and, when, when, and when we courageously bear with one another, it sets the table for the other to courageously bear for us when the time comes. You ever had something in your nose? I know, it sounds cr crude. You ever had something in your nose and literally had about 50 different people that walked by, didn't say anything to you about it? Didn't say anything. As you recap, as you recap this thing being in your nose, you know that they saw it, right? You remember, you start recapping, you remember the conversation where somebody was just kind of looking at you strange and <laughs> kind of looking and then you look at them, they either, you know, redirect their eyes or avert their eyes in other directions, then they come back looking at it. I mean, why are they looking at me so funny? And you go all day long and then finally, finally God sends somebody. Sends one of his real people, right? One of, one of the real Christians. He finally sends a real Christian to come to you and to say, they don't even say anything. They just look and just, you know, just, oh, oh, thank you, thank you. And there's a bond there after that, isn't it? You got something special there, right? Because you're like, hey, that brother got me. I don't, know, I don't know about any of those other folks that I ran into today, but I know if all of this hits the fan, he got me. And so, and so, and not only, not only does that, not only does that moment happen, but then you feel like you can go to them, right? Hey, bro, breath man, come on. Breath man, take a breath man, man. Right? You feel like you can be honest with each other because someone has courageously confronted you in that moment and you've built trust in that moment. That's what happens when we do that. When you actually open the floodgates and someone falls and instead of you looking on the side and kind of chuckling or telling everybody else about their failure or all the other stuff that we do in these Christian circles, instead of doing that, you actually go to that sister or you go to that brother in private and you say, hey, man, let me just tell you something that kind of you did the other day and I just want to bring it back to your attention. I just want to see if you saw, saw that. Then you know that from then on out that you got somebody that will probably do the exact same thing for you. Does that make sense? So you bear well and you love with toughness in order that God might bring about the people in your life that you will need someday to do the exact same thing. Listen. We all have our own load to bear. We all must test our own work. We all should not look to our neighbors' failures to boast in our own uh, successes, right? And because we all have our own load to bear, as Paul says in this text, and because all of our own work must be tested, as Paul says in this text, then we need each other. I need you to come and be honest with me. And you need me to come and be honest with you. And not just be honest and walk away, but be honest and be willing to walk with me back towards the right path. We need each other. This is what Christ has shown us. 
by pouring himself out so that we all might be brought to the path of righteousness by boldly confronting our sin head on rather than leaving us in a state of denial that ultimately leads us into the pits of hell. Boldly confronting our sin so that we all might be saved. Let us imitate our God and let us walk in his law by doing the same for one another. Amen. Let's pray. God, we love you and thank you. And we give you all the praise and glory and honor. Father, we ask that you would help us. Help us, God. Help us love one another well. These things we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was brought to you by the family and friends of City Light Church. For church worship times, directions, support opportunities, or other ministry information, please visit www.citylightvicksburg.org.